0: We turn in the Word of God to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and verse 33 and 34. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 and 34. Mark 15, from verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Amen. Thus far we read the Word of God. And our theme this evening is Christ suffering the pains of hell. Christ suffering the pains of hell. We look this evening at words that I don't think we will ever fully understand in this world, however many times we turn to them. We will never feel satisfied that we have plumbed the depths of meaning in this cry of the Lord Jesus on the cross. As we mentioned at the meetings yesterday in Chelmsford, these are things that angels desire to look into. And surely in the world to come, the people of God will forever explore their meaning as they worship God and the Lamb that was slain. It is written in the scripture, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And in Israel, normally those uh, punished by death were hanged up on a tree after death indicating that they were handed over to the curse of God beyond this world. But our Lord Jesus hangs on a tree and is alive. He's on this side of the grave. He has been taken outside the camp, excommunicated by the Israelite professing Church of God or by their leaders handed over to the Gentiles as one accursed. That's why the priests and the elders didn't go into the judgment hall lest they be defiled. But the Lord Jesus, they had no regard for him. The fact that he was sent into the judgment hall didn't matter because he was regarded as uh, excommunicated outside the congregation of God. And here he hangs upon a tree but still living and our Lord Jesus was bearing the wrath of God on this side of the grave We may say that he endured the second death before the first. That he was bearing the vengeance of God in this world. It is common to hear people rather loosely speaking of human sufferings in terms of being like hell on earth. But even when this is an expression used sincerely, it is inaccurate and it is dishonouring to the Saviour. Though it is undoubtedly true that sometimes the miseries of men can be exceeding great in this world and can in that sense for the ungodly be foretastes of hell. Yet they are always in this life very far short of the pains of hell and the unrestrained, undiluted wrath of God that will come upon unsaved sinners in the world to come. The thieves that were crucified with the Lord Jesus did not suffer anything like the extent of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only once did the miseries of this present life reach the level of the full pains of hell and the wages of sin. Only once did the miseries of this life become equivalent to the sorrows of hell in their fullness. And that was in the sufferings and death of the Redeemer of God's elect, our Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly during the three hours of darkness on the cross. And though all of Christ's sufferings, from as soon as he could suffer, were part of his redeeming work and his atonement for sin, yet there was a climax. Our Lord Jesus suffered all through his life. This morning we referred to the vexation of his soul by sin. We compared him, the sinless saviour, with a perfectly pure soul compared with that very imperfect uh, saint Lot in the Old Testament. And yet even Lot's soul was vexed by sin. So how much more? the Lord Jesus, who was perfectly sensitive to all sin, how his soul must have been vexed by all that was around him. And so all his life, he suffered that vexation. And then as he entered his public work, he endured the hostility of men. And as the truth was The truth that he came to declare and to manifest became more apparent. How that hatred increased and uh, mounted and progressed. And then we have the agonies of Gethsemane and the mockery at Gabbatha, the pavement, and then Golgotha. These things mark the height of the contradiction of sinners because as well as the physical agonies of the Lord Jesus, he bore the reproach of men and he bore it to the full. The mockery of the Lord Jesus included the consistent denial that he was the Christ of God and the consistent denial of all his officers as prophet, priest, and king. So in chapter 14 and verse 65, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. So they covered his face and they smote him and said, Prophesy unto us, who is it that smote thee? They are mocking Christ, the the great, the supreme prophet. So they mocked his prophetic office. And they mocked his priestly office. They mocked it in that It is not even in their reckoning. So in chapter 15 verse 32. Let Christ the King of Israel. Descend now from the cross. That we may see and believe. And and they that were crucified with him. Reviled him. You see the priesthood of Christ. Is not even taken into account. The assumption is that he's on the cross because it is beyond his power to be otherwise. And so they say, if thou be the Christ, come down from the cross. But he doesn't come down because he is the great high priest, offering himself as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And then his kingship, above all, was mocked and derided and ridiculed in chapter 15 and verse 26. Yes, verse 26. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews and with him they crucify two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. If there is one thing that is consistently denied by the enemies of Christ. It is Christ's kingship. We find that Pilate, of course, despised the Jews and he used the Lord Jesus as a means of expressing his contempt for them. That's why he keeps calling him the king of the Jews. That's why he led him out with the crown of thorns and the robe upon him and said behold your king look at him that's why his soldiers mocked him they put a mock scepter in his hand a reed and then they took it from him and they smote him with it because Pilate and his men derided the Lord Jesus and insisted on on referring to him as the King of the Jews, in order to show their contempt for the Jews. And no doubt that's why they were too crucified with him. It was all part, all part of the mockery. Let's give the King of the Jews two attendants on either side. Let's show the Jews what we think of them by mocking this supposed king of the Jews. And so the officers of Christ were denied utterly at every point. And then when the Lord Jesus did cry, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Sabakthani. Still they mocked. Let's see, they deliberately misconstrue Eloi and treat it not as my God, but as Elias, Elijah. And they say, "Well, this is supposed to be the Christ. Well, Elijah was to come before the Christ. but he hasn't. Let's see if he'll come now. Now that he's on the cross, now belatedly, let's see if Elijah will come. And it was all part of the mockery of Christ's claim and of his messiahship, of his being the Christ of God. So there was all this contradiction of sinners and all the anguish that it caused the holy soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even within this. There is a greater climax still. And here in this cry. My God, my God. He expresses suffering. That is beyond all that has gone before. He is isolated. From all consolation in man. And shut up to the very opposite. His soul suffers at the hands of an angry God as we mentioned this morning that explains the agony of Gethsemane not merely great physical suffering but that he was to bear the vengeance of God nothing else explains the agony of Gethsemane but that that he was to be the substitute of sinners and to bear the vengeance of God to the full And this explains why in Luke's gospel we read of a strengthening angel. In Luke 22, in the garden, verse 43, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Now, the role of angels is not to strengthen the soul. They they were uh, agents of revelation, but They also, though not physical themselves, they ministered in physical things. So after the temptation in the wilderness, angels ministered to him. And when it says the angel strengthened him, it means that his physical body was strengthened so that he should not uh, die prematurely, but that he should uh, be living and conscious to bear the wrath of God. And that's why when they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, this was uh, something of a drug to dull the senses that was often given to condemned criminals, but he would not take off it, because our Lord Jesus was to fully, be fully conscious, bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And that's why we say. He was to suffer the pains of hell. By that we do not mean that he left his body prior to his death. Nor do we mean that he went to the place called hell after his death. Where the the, the wrath of God is displayed. But we mean that he suffered the whole wrath of God upon sin. A wrath only ever otherwise fully poured forth in hell itself. There are two places where the wrath of God is poured out without mixture. One is the cross of Calvary, where Christ was bearing the vengeance of God in the place of his people. And the other is hell, where those who are not saved by the Lord Jesus shall bear the unrestrained wrath of God forevermore. So Christ suffered the pains of hell on the cross, not after his death. That's why in the the Westminster standards, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, it has along with it the so-called Apostles' Creed, and there's a note appended explaining that the phrase descended into hell, that the only sense in which that can be true after his death is that his body continued in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. But Christ's sufferings were concluded with, uh, on the cross and concluded with his death. Though his body remained in the state of humiliation. uh, Until the resurrection. So the only sense in which Christ suffered the horrors of hell. Was on the cross. And the forsakenness of God. Which he endured. Which is the essence of hell. So he bore the pains of hell before physical death. And that's why just before his death, he cried, It is finished, because his bearing of divine vengeance was at a conclusion. And that's why he said to the thief who believed on him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And when our Lord Jesus said, It is finished, He was employing the words of the last verse of Psalm 22. They shall declare that he has done this. It's done. It's completed. Now then, let us consider more specifically from this verse 34, this cry, my God, my God. Consider the outer darkness of the representative of sinners. The outer darkness. You'll notice that there were three hours of darkness in verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. These three hours of darkness were three hours when God's oldest gift was withdrawn, that of light. It goes back Uh, Beyond even the creation of the sun. As the light bearer on the fourth day. Back to the first day of creation. When God created light. On the first day. Indeed the light defined the first day. And even after man's sin. God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. And the removal of light was a mark of god's judgment so in egypt there was a darkness which may be felt in exodus 10:21 and the prophet joel speaking of god's judgment that was coming he says for the day of the lord cometh for it is nigh at hand a day of darkness and of gloominess a day of clouds and of thick darkness and again the sun and moon shall be dark and the stars shall be with shall withdraw their shining. And Amos tells us, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon and I will darken the earth in the clear day. I give these verses to show that darkness was a sign of judgment, a sign of A day of the Lord. Those days of the Lord in the history of the world. Those times when God was particularly displaying his judgment in this world. And those days of the Lord that are mentioned are all a foretaste of the final day of the Lord. When the unsaved sinner will be cast into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of the te- of teeth. But Christ here is facing his personal day of God. God is showing that he is actively pouring out his wrath upon the Lord Jesus, that the horrors of hell are being poured out upon the substitute of the elect of God. Because Christ is here before God as the substitute of sinners. And uh, he there appears on behalf of his people. And all their righteousness is as filthy rags. And he is being made sin for them who knew no sin. And so the darkness indicates that he is bearing the vengeance of God. And this is the verdict of God. This is the verdict of God upon the lives of guilty men and women. Darkness, agony, desolation. And the Lord Jesus, whose natural element is heaven, is enduring the pains of hell. But then secondly, the anguish of the sinner's representative. The anguish. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We notice here that Christ felt forsaken. And we get some indication of his anguish from his words. He uses the term my God, my God. In Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father. And on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then later, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. But here he falls back on the more official relation of God to man. And he says, my God. And we must also consider the immense effort involved in this cry of the Lord Jesus. Jesus cried with a loud voice for one in such pain and weakness to summon the resources of strength and voice to cry out indicates that his anguish must have been exceeding great. And then... The fact that he uses the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, which we were singing earlier My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was the Lord Jesus quoting the psalm? Was it a quotation? Well, yes and no. Certainly, it was the Spirit of Christ in David who inspired these words in Psalm 22 and it is certain that christ as a man though never ceasing to be god that he lived in the scriptures one very foolish writer says that this account can't be right he says because when people are in great anguish they don't quote what absolute nonsense Christians who live in the word of God they do quote scripture in great distress because they live by the words that proceed from the mouth of God and if that is true of imperfect Christians in their extremities how much more of the Lord Jesus the God man redeemer who was the perfect man of the word But yet Christ does not use the pure Hebrew as recited in the temple. But the Aramaic, Aramaic is uh, something of a variation on Hebrew. In other words, this isn't mere quotation. Yes, it is the words of Psalm 22, but they are the expression of, of what is actually in Christ's soul. Of the anguish that he is enduring. They are not mere citation. They are the expression of what is there. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And such a strain is put upon human language. That the words of scripture clearly are used to express... What he is enduring. The wrath of God. And it comes at the end. Of the three hours of darkness. And at the ninth hour. We are told. He bore the wrath of God. And now. At the utmost extremity. He speaks. Not in anger. Not in complaint but in utter anguish of soul. But he said, we said that Christ felt forsaken, and that's true. But he felt forsaken because he was forsaken. We look in a moment at in what sense he was forsaken, but it wasn't a mere feeling that had no basis in fact he infallibly declares himself forsaken. Now, in order to understand to a degree what was happening, we must be clear about some things concerning the person of Christ. Christ was always God. And as we mentioned uh, yesterday, a divine nature cannot be forsaken of God the Father nor suffer pain and anguish. God, God in three persons, is blessed forever. But Christ became a man. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. And he continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, we don't understand that. Of course we don't. There's no parallel. There's no illustration it is unique Christ was God and man in two distinct natures the two natures were not merged there is no mixture of the two two distinct natures and one person forever as an infant he had the body of an infant and the human consciousness of an infant a growing body, a developing human consciousness as far as his human nature is concerned. That's why we read, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. And he was capable of sinless and perfectly true thought processes. He received information That's why we read, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now, as God, he always knew everything. And in his human consciousness, always had a a sinless, perfectly, his thoughts were always sinless and perfect and believing. And always had sufficient knowledge. Knowledge for his communications to be infallible and completely true. And so we find in his sinless processes of thought in his human nature, he responds in thought and feeling to situations and words. We read that he groaned within himself, that he was moved with compassion or that he was moved with anger. We read that he marveled both at At faith and at unbelief. We're told that he rejoiced in spirit. And we're told that he was exceeding sorrowful. Now these aren't speaking of God as if he were man. This is speaking of the God-man and of what is true of his actual human nature. Because God, uh, the Lord Jesus did not simply seem to be man he actually did take to himself a human nature so that he was God and he became a man, fully a man without ceasing to be God. He had a complete human nature united to the divine in the one person. And when the Lord Jesus suffered, It was the suffering of a divine person in his human nature, in his human body and in his human soul. So when he says, why hast thou forsaken me? We can say some things that weren't happening. There was no abandoning or severing of the two natures. Neither was it that the father ceased to love with a delighting love in the holiness and righteousness of Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But as God was pouring forth his judicial wrath upon Christ, the substitute of sinners, there was the removal of all the comforting work of the Holy Spirit upon the human soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. The removal of the joys of the spirit. We cannot understand that. And we mustn't go beyond what is written. Lest we should be found false witnesses of God. But there was the removal of the comforts of God. As to his human soul. But then thirdly let us look at the profession of the sinner's representative. There is a profession of utter devotion to God. My God, my God. The psalmist calls God his exceeding joy. If that was true of the psalmist, how much more of the Son of Man? No one ever delighted in God as he did. No one loved God as he did. Because we're sinners in our trouble. We seek creature comfort. We idolize the creature. And yet Asaph could say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. If that was true of Asaph, how much more and completely and perfectly of the Son of Man. If we're Christians, we know what it is to some extent to long for God and yet for a time to be denied his comforts. David in Psalm 22 experienced something of the fellowship of Christ's suffering at the hands of men and under the chastening of God. I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the Song of Solomon, the church of God, the people of God are represented as saying, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Those who love God feel the pain of the absence of his comforts. But we do not long for God as Christ did. Nor will we ever feel so, if we're Christians, ever feel so utterly the displeasure of God as Christ did. Because Christ was not experiencing simply the chastening hand of God. He was bearing the judicial displeasure of God. We long imperfectly and we feel only his chastening hand. But Christ longed for God perfectly and was denied utterly because he was bearing the judicial wrath of God. So, what we have here in this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is a perfect longing for God, utterly denied a supreme longing, utterly denied. Not long previously, at the grave of Lazarus, he had said, I know that thou hearest me always, but here he says, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, Christ, as the Son of Man, perfectly loved the God of his damnation, On the cross as he bore the damnation of God. In the place of his people. He still perfectly loved God. There was no resentment. In his holy soul. Against this God. Who was damning him. For the sins of his people. There was no sin in him. And as the perfect man of prayer. He finds heaven closed. And still he prays. He cannot but pray, even though thrust away of God. He must still pray to God because he loves God. And so he prays, my God, my God. We hardly can stir ourselves to pray when the way is open. But the perfect son of man cannot but pray when the way is closed. And there is here a profession of conscious innocence. My God, my God. Christ, the keeper of the covenant of life. That covenant of life requiring perfect obedience. Which Adam did not give. Christ kept there was no sin in him. He was holy, harmless and undefiled. He was the one, the only one, qualified in himself to say, my God, my God. And yet here he is, under the wrath of God, like an apostate, an Ishmael or an Esau. Here is Christ the true seed, the ultimate seed of Abraham. You remember in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. God said to Abraham I will be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. But all the promises were in Christ Jesus. So the believing literal seed and then the wild Gentile olive branches to be grafted in. They were blessed in the one seed that is Christ. It is in Christ that they are blessed. Men shall be blessed in him and blessed, and all nations shall call him blessed. Because the one who had the right to say, my God, was forsaken of God. So that an elect multitude in due time would be able to say in him, my God, my God. Do we understand the immensity of the privilege of being able to call God our God. Not simply in the sense of being our Creator and Judge, but our God in a bond of fellowship and love through Christ Jesus. That's why in Psalm 16, Psalm 16 and verse 5, Psalm 16 and verse 5, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. And of my cup thou maintainest my lot. God himself is the inheritance of his people. I am thy shield and thine exceeding great reward. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. That is to have God himself as our God. And how is this? It's in Christ. That's why the later verses of that psalm are quoted in the New Testament in connection with Christ uh, and in connection with his resurrection. He is the first fruits of them that sleep. Christ and then afterwards they that are his at his coming. But the point is that in Christ who who calls God his God, his people in Christ have God as their God. That's why we are said to be heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And that's why after his resurrection, he said to to Mary Magdalene to tell his brethren, the disciples, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. There is distinction. His sonship is unique. He doesn't say our God and our Father. But he does, though maintaining the distinction, nevertheless point to the fact that in him, his brethren, those who are his, have God as their God and have his Father as their Father. I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So that the people of God are heirs of God in Christ. And we can call God our God. Because Christ bore the vengeance of God and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In order that we, if we are his people, can say that his God is our God and his Father is our Father. Well then, what do we learn from all this? The first thing is this. Do you believe in this God of holy wrath? Do you believe in this God of holy wrath? Because if you don't, you despise Christ. If you don't believe in hell and you don't believe in a God of justice and judgment, you despise Christ. if you do not believe that sinners deserve damnation, you despise the Saviour who came to seek and to save that which was lost by bearing damnation in their place. To deny the reality of hell is to despise this truth. If you don't believe there's a hell and if you don't believe you deserve to go there it is certain you are on the road to it. Those who are on the way to heaven they know that they deserve to go to hell. And those who think they deserve to go to heaven are surely on the way to hell. But you say, what about the love of God? Here is the supreme display of the love of God. That's why the Apostle John, speaking of the people of God, he says herein is love not that we loved God but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins propitiation that means one who bears the wrath of another it's talking of Christ bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And God, in his love, sent his Son to redeem his people by bearing the demands of his own justice as their surety in their place, the one who took upon himself their legal liabilities, the condemnation they deserved, here in his love. You see, the liberals, they deny the wrath of God, don't they? They deny the justice of God, don't they? They say there's no such thing as hell. A God of love wouldn't send people to hell. And they talk much of the love of God. But you know, the liberals have not the first idea of the love of God because they deny what the Bible teaches to be the supreme de- display of the love of God. The propitiation. Here in his love. Here in his love. If there's, if there's no propitiation or no propitiation needed, then where is this love? That's why the liberals, by denying the justice of God, even though they talk much of the love of God, they don't understand it either. They don't understand any of it. Because here in his love, the propitiation, God sending his son to bear his wrath in the place of sinners. That's the supreme display of the love of God. If there's no propitiation, then you deny the love of God. So it's not just that the liberals emphasize the love of God more. They don't even understand the love of God. Not at all. Because they deny the supreme display of it in Christ's bearing the wrath of God. Which is why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is this God of judgment? Your God? Has your heart been renewed by the Spirit so that instead of resenting this truth, you love it? You delight in it? You rejoice in God's salvation? The Scriptures throughout tell us that the way God saves is a just way. As well as merciful and gracious. That's why in Psalm ninety-eight and verse two, we which we were singing in the metrical version, verse two, the Lord hath made known His salvation, His righteousness, hath He openly showed, in the sight of the heathen. The way God saves, yes, it's gracious, but it's righteous too. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The way God saves uh, displays the glory of God. Displays his attributes. He is a just God and a saviour. So in Romans chapter 3, we read of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3 verse 25 Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That he might be just and the justifier. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to justify a sinner? Well, to justify is the opposite of to condemn. To condemn is to declare guilty. To justify is to declare not guilty. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? That tells us justification is the opposite of condemnation. So to justify is when the judge declares not guilty. And this is telling us, That through the cross of Christ God remains just because he always punishes sin and he does. But he is the justifier, the one who declares not guilty him that believeth in Jesus. And sinners who believe in Jesus, God is faithful to his promises and just to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It is a just and a righteous thing with God to declare not guilty sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well now, is this God your God? Do you delight in this salvation? Is all your hope and confidence in this Saviour who came to bear the sin of many? Is this the one you trust in? Because the people of God, the true people of God, they rest all their hope and confidence in this Saviour and none else. They don't pretend that they're not sinners. They don't pretend that their sins are just small and not very important and don't deserve the everlasting wrath of God. They know that they do. And they don't pretend that they can make amends for their sins. And they don't argue anymore with God about whether they deserve damnation or not because they know that they do and that God would have been utterly just to consign them to everlasting darkness forevermore. They've stopped arguing with God about these things because they've been born of the Spirit. And they know that the Lord is righteous but they trust in his Son As the one who bore the guilt of sin. The one who came to bear the vengeance of God. And it is this Savior in whom you must trust in order to be forgiven before God. Otherwise you will die in your sins. Because God does punish sin. And if there's one thing this generation needs to hear, it is that God punishes sin. A generation has arisen that has not been told these things and who have had liberal so-called churchmen telling them the opposite and helping them to take not the slightest bit of notice of this truth. And inoculating them against this truth. And this needs to be made absolutely clear. And it needs to be clear to us that God does punish sin. Every sin. Those who are saved by Christ. Christ has borne the punishment. Those not saved by Christ. Will bear the punishment themselves in hell. But every single transgression. Transgression will be punished in the end by God. In eternity, there will be not one single unpunished sin. And that is why our hope and trust must be in Christ, the sin-bearer, or all is lost. But then if we are the people of God, how we ought to love this Saviour. Hate evil ye that love the Lord. The people of God have this testimony. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God. What manner of men and women ought we to be in all godliness and holy conversation? You know, we can't love this Saviour too much and we can't think too highly of him. It's not possible. So then, Let us seek his grace to understand what we owe to him, the Redeemer, who cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?